Good morning, everyone. My name is Joel Florendo. I'm an elder here at Real Life and uh, excited to bring a message to you. This is our third week in the sermon series, Prepare the Way, in which we're looking at the life of John the Baptist. And we're, this sermon series was designed to ask the question, what can we learn from John's life? What are the cues that we can take for him to follow in order for us to live out the mission of Jesus in greater capacity? Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, how, G- how John was the forerunner to Jesus and that he lived out his purpose, his mission in the spirit of Elijah in order to prepare the way for people to meet Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to look at a phrase that he used, a passage in which he refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And there's a bunch of weird stuff through this entire story, so just hang with me. I'm trying to explain uh, what's going on in, in these passages that we talk about. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that at the end of the day that we, we can walk out of here realizing how John lived his life with his entire identity rooted in Jesus. That, that down to his very core, every fiber of his being was, was oriented to point towards who Jesus was and prepare the way for people to meet him. And that maybe you could walk out of here asking yourself the question, am I aligned to that? Am I willing to orient every part of my being towards pointing to Jesus as well. Uh, But 700 years before John was even born, the prophet Isaiah had this to say about him. He said, a voice of one crying out. You guys got to help me with this next part, right? You guys know what to do. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Thank you. I was afraid that was not going to go very well. And I was going to have to explain to Justin what, uh, what I've been doing here. It says, make straight a highway for, God, for our God in the desert. So it says that John came out of the desert preaching and telling people that they needed to confess their sins and, and, and repent and then be baptized. And then it says that people came from all over the region to see him. And I don't know about you, but this is a weird story. I mean, this, this strange guy comes running out of the desert, yelling at people and telling them they need to repent of their sins and then be baptized. And then everybody's like flocking them like teenage girls to a Taylor Swift concert, you know? <laughs> like, what is happening here? Well, I think that uh, the prophet Malachi can actually help explain what this frenzy around John was. So 500 years before John was born. The prophet Malachi says this, Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And he continues on. He says, Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives, his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children... To the fathers. Well, did you catch what it says there? Remember that last week we talked about how John comes in the spirit of Elijah. When, and from the time that Mike, uh, Malachi wrote the, this, this prophecy, there was 500 years of silence, right? And then all of a sudden John comes out in the spirit of Elijah. What, what it cued for people in this, in this moment was looking at this prophecy that that. God said the return of Elijah actually signals the coming of the Messiah. 
And so people are, they're excited about this. Our Savior is coming, is he? And so they want to go and find out and ask John and, and figure out, is he the real deal? Is he Elijah? Is he the Messiah? And so people swarmed him. Maybe they come out with earnest expectation of, of looking for a savior. Or maybe they come out with skepticism. We know that the leaders of the day actually came out wanting to challenge John's authority. But can you imagine the weight of the expectations on John that growing up, hearing these prophecies were about you, and the weight of having to live out that prophecy. And, you know, I mean, John actually was very successful. He, he created a movement. He created a following. He had a massive amount of people following him. But how hard would that be if we put ourselves in his shoes to, to, to not let that go to our heads, right? To not let our identity be wrapped up in the crowds and the fame. Because remember that John's job, his purpose, was to, to point to someone greater than him, to point to Jesus, to prepare the way for people to meet Jesus. We look in the Gospel of John, we see an example of John the Baptist hanging on tightly to this purpose. It says this, The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And then as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they turned and followed Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, when I think about putting myself in John's shoes, uh, that probably was not a great moment. I, I mean, if I think about it, I, I would honestly be wrestling with maybe some jealousy, maybe feeling a little bit threatened. I had all these crowds following me, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing them now peel off to follow somebody else. I think we have to understand that preparing the way for Jesus, it sometimes isn't fun. And sometimes requires us to experience uh, a bit of loss. Well, throughout the years of leading home groups, my wife and I, uh, we've, we've had to watch as we've sent out people from our group to lead new groups and create new space. And I have to admit that that's not easy. I was talking with Justin earlier this week, and we were reminiscing about uh, the first group that he and I were in together. And he was, he was leading, and at a certain point, he said, I'm going to gather up a, a few of you families, and I'm going to send you off to start a new group. And we were talking about how I responded to that, how like, that made me feel, and I was thinking about it, and I remembered thinking, man, this kind of sucks. I... I, I miss hanging out with the people in my group. I miss how things were. But the reality is if Justin hadn't led in the way that he did, we would have missed the opportunity of opening up a home group uh, to host in our home, and then eventually to lead our own group. And, and now that as we're going along, we're sending people off, you know, of course, these are proud moments. I, I love watching people start new groups. But I still wrestle. I still wrestle with this selfish desire 
to keep things as they are. I still wrestle with having my identity wrapped up in the, my group being awesome, you know? But I have to realize that sending people out to start new groups, it actually creates space. It opens doors for disciples to actually take steps, for them to, to, to take new steps in Jesus and for actually new disciples to be born. Well, this is what preparing the way looks like. We look at what John had to wrestle through and how he actually responded in the face of, of his ministry, experiencing loss, but still maintaining this attitude, I'm going to prepare the way. There's a story, another story in the Gospel of John where Jesus and his disciples are traveling around the region and they're, they're actually spending time together and they're, they're, they're living life together and people are coming to them and they're baptizing people. And actually it says in the next chapter over that, that it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing people. It was actually his disciples who were baptizing. But John and his disciples were also kind of in that same area in a place called Anon. And uh, they, were, they were gathered there and people were also flocking to them to get baptized as well. At a certain point, uh, it says that, that John's disciples get in an argument with a certain man, you know, as people do, they get together and they fight. That's what we do, right? Uh, and so it says that they argued about uh, ceremonial purification. What does that have to do with anything? We have to realize that baptism wasn't a new thing for the Jews, that it, it actually was uh, attached, they would have attached it to ceremonial purification. The, like how the priest would have to bathe before he offered sacrifices at the temple, or, or even for people, before they could enter the temple, they would actually have to, to wash themselves. This is where ceremonial purification. So people would have attached what John is doing in baptism to, to this idea. And so probably the argument goes something like this. There's not a lot of details, but we, we think maybe this guy is asking him, challenging him, like, what right, what authority do you guys have to, to ceremonially clean people like this? What right do you have to baptize? And did you know that this guy, other, this other guy, Jesus, he's also baptizing people. What right does he have to do that? Well, John's disciples, they're alarmed. They go running back to John, they're like, John, did you know that that guy that you pointed out, you said he was the Messiah? Do you know he's baptizing people too? They're, not, they're going to him. They're not coming to us anymore. What are we going to do about this? I mean, you're John the Baptist, right? This is literally your thing. What are we going to do? Well, look how John responds. No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. What does this mean? John, again, in his weird ways, is, you know, spouting off this stuff. 
Well, throughout the text, we see God actually uses wedding imagery to, to communicate to his people. It's, it's all over. We look at this passage in Isaiah. It says, fear not. You will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of your widowhood. For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. His, he is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. Why is this important? What does this tell us about who God is and what he's like? Well, I argue that it, it tells us that God, he longs to be united with us. He longs to have a, this kind of relationship, this inseparable relationship between a husband and a wife. Or this quote from Leo Tolstoy is one of my favorite. And it, it not only, I think, describes what a husband and wife should be like, but it also describes what God longs for with us. It says this, that he felt now that he was not simply close to her, but he did not know where he ended and she began. So it's not surprising that John chooses to use wedding imagery to describe his relationship here with Jesus. But what's he saying? So in ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies, there was a role in the ceremony called the shoshben. And this was the friend of the bridegroom. And so this is what John calls himself. And we might think this is like uh, the, the best man in our weddings, although the, the tradition of the best man actually comes from a, from a different place. It's actually from 16th century Scotland. And so Scottish men, they would usually marry within women from within their village, but sometimes there's not enough women to go around, right? And so a man would actually travel to another village, and he would actually kidnap a wife, a woman, and bring her back and then marry her. You know, that's what guys do, right? <laughs> but you can't go roaming into some village and kidnap somebody. You actually have to take somebody with you to help you grab her and then fight your way out, right? Because her relatives and her family is going to try to stop you. So you take along your best man, right? So then the best man then during the ceremony actually stands next to the bride and groom with his sword ready to go in case the family comes in to fight and bring her back. He also stands guard to make sure that the woman doesn't run away, right? <laughs> So this is not the picture that John's trying to illustrate, right? Although it actually is a little bit akin to what some Christians actually, how they approach the mission of Jesus. Uh, it gets funnier as you think about it, but uh, then it, if you keep thinking about it, it's not as funny anymore. Uh, but the Shoshben, so in Jewish ceremonies, he was a very important role. He had a lot of responsibilities. He was actually in charge of taking care of arrangements. He was sending out invitations, making sure the guests were okay. He even was in charge of, of making sure that the, the bride was properly uh, dressed and adorned. But his most important duty was to guard the bridal chamber. And so he would stand guard at the door of the bridal chamber and make sure that no man entered except for the groom. And sometimes the groom would take a while to show up. And so, you know, it would get dark. And the shoshman would stand there in the dark guarding the door. 
And when the groom would arrive, he would call out and say, here I am. And the shoshpen would hear his voice and he would rejoice and he would let the groom in to be united with his bride. And I think for John, he recognizing that for the shoshpen, his job culminated in bringing the bride to the groom. And this is what John is trying to convey. His job, John's job, was to prepare the way for Jesus to be united with his people. Well, he doesn't get jealous. He doesn't get threatened by Jesus taking his followers, right? He's not jealous any more than the best man would be jealous of the groom being united with the bride, right? He recognizes that Jesus must become more and more And that requires that John becomes less and less. Well, how does he do this? How does he stand with integrity in his mission in the face of all this fame and all all the crowds? Well, I would argue that it actually is because he has so securely rooted his identity in Jesus. If you look in all four Gospels, each one quotes John as saying, I am not the Messiah. I have come to prepare the way for the Messiah who is greater than me. I would argue that it's in all four Gospels because probably John said it over and over and over and over again. He probably had to tell himself that over and over and over again. Securely rooting his identity in Jesus. He tenaciously orients his life to point to Jesus with every fiber of his being every time. Well, there's another story in the Gospel of John that actually illustrates how John does this. It says that John's, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders were sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? When he came out, right out and said, I am not the Messiah. It's, I, it's funny how it, they write that like he's actually answering the question, right? Well, the, the conversation continues and and. Uh, they ask him, well, like, are you Elijah? And he's like, no. Are you the prophet? No. Well, if you're not, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, you're not the Messiah, who the heck are you, John? And John's answer, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. Over and over again, points to Jesus. Well, then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? Well, John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in this crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be a slave and, and untie the straps of his sandals. Again, this is weird. Like why, he's not even answering the question, is he? But I think this is what's happening. The priests, Levites, and the Pharisees are coming to him. They're, they're challenging him. What right do you have to baptize? Who are you, John? And John's answer, again, rooted in who Jesus is. I think what he's saying is you're asking the wrong question. You should be looking at who Jesus is. His answer is, who am I? I am a disciple of Jesus. Everything that I am in my entire identity 
is rooted in him. And I will make myself less and less in order for him to become more and more. But I think that John's example and his answer here actually forces us to ask the question, what do I have in my life that I root my identity in that isn't Jesus? And am I willing to take that and surrender that to him, to actually reorient that to point to Jesus? Was it my career? Is it my position? Maybe it's motherhood? Is it my abilities? Do I base my identity on something that's other than Jesus? Are you willing to surrender that? Are you willing to say something like, you know, I I built houses, but here's somebody whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie Are you willing to tell people, well, I'm a medical professional, but here's somebody whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. I teach middle school kids, but here's somebody whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. I'm a stay-at-home mom, but here is somebody whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. I'm a hunger pleader. But here's somebody whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. You remember those two followers that left John to follow Jesus? So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Do you see what's happening here? John points Andrew to Jesus. And then Andrew points Peter to Jesus. And you guys know Andrew and Peter, right? These guys go on to lay the foundation of the church as we know it. We can draw a a direct line from Peter and Andrew to us in this room, right? But the reality is actually, you could draw a direct line from John directly to the people in this room. That his intentionality and his, his tenacity to continue to point towards Jesus that impact is immeasurable. It, we're all here because of John's his, his tenacity of pointing to Jesus. Well, what is God calling you to today in order to prepare the way for others to meet Jesus, in order for us to be able to draw a circle around you and a direct line to thousands and thousands of disciples? I don't think it needs to be this grand step. I think we can take small steps. Things like preparing a a meal for the meal trains or helping a friend move, helping a stranger move, being willing to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth through your gifting, maybe even through some things that you don't like doing. To be so close to Jesus that you don't know where he ends and you begin. As we approach communion, I 
I'd like us to wrestle with these questions. What areas is Jesus calling you to, to sacrifice in, in order to allow yourself to be less and less so that he can be more and more? Or are you willing to operate with conscientiousness and integrity in your work, even if you'd rather do the minimum, or even if you wouldn't get noticed, in order to prepare the way for people to meet Jesus through the good work that you do? Are you willing to serve your spouse or even your parents by doing the menial tasks around the house to prepare the way for them to experience how Jesus cares for them? Are you willing to step in and serve on Easter to prepare the way for those seeking Jesus this season so they can experience how Jesus wants to be integrated in every part of their lives? Are you willing to join a group to prepare the way for others to see how being in real relationship with somebody who shares vulnerably and honestly how that reflects the grace that Jesus extends to us? Are you willing to spend time daily in God's word and prayer so that you can be ready when it comes time to prepare the way for someone to meet Jesus for the first time. I just want us to wrestle with these questions. What is, what is it that you root your identity in? What are, you, what are you willing to surrender to him and to say, no, Jesus, my identity is rooted in you and this thing that I've been essentially worshiping, I'm going to lay that at the altar and use that actually to point to you. Let's spend some time in prayer.